knowing is half the battle. It certainly is. Welcome to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fucks to give about actor Dennis Quaid. I'm uncredited mummy reunion cameo Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Logic Pro Commander Jeb Lund. Hello, Jeb. Yo, Jeb! Hi. And uh, returning to the guest's chair, although officially he doesn't exist, it's Extra Hot Grade's own David T. Cole. Hello, Dave. Uh, I smell pork chops. Woo! My God, does that smell good? No, no. Um, we are here to <laughs> contemplate G.I. Joe colon The Rise of Cobra. I guess I'll do a plot summary, although I think anyone who's been alive for longer than five minutes probably knows roughly how this goes. But um, here we go. Crash, boom, cleavage, vengeance, backstory, crunch, blam, Vaseline lens, hoit, biff, splat, kaboom, talking villain, pow, honk, huzzah. Did I miss anything? Uh, I'm glad you got the kaboom. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. Yeah. I think maybe you're only missing the sizzle. The sizzle from the nanites, that's it. Oh, yeah. The sizzle. I mean, there is more to it than that, I guess. But this script took three fucking people to write, so I guess I should um, honor their sacrifice with the following. The first Doctor Who has scammed NATO out of research funding for nanomites, lol, which he's going to use to take over the world with the help of Jude Law's ex-wife. But not if Magic Mike, not that Wayans, the other one, no, the other other one. Scarlet's neurodivergent cleavage and General Jonas Quain have anything to say about it, and they do, but not before the first Doctor and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's dollar store Vader vocoder sick a bunch of green bedbugs on the Eiffel Tower, and a very stoned Brendan Fraser presides over a training montage as a favor to the director. Now, did I miss anything? No. Okay. This was very bad. This is the worst one we've seen in a while. Dave, you saw this in the theater, is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, man. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, or was it just a, I sure. needed the air conditioning situation? Uh, no, I think I was high on the possibilities of this film, and obviously it did not deliver, but let's roll back time and roll back our mindset to a time before we've seen this in which somebody is creating now that you know superhero movies are sort of moving to the forefront and everybody's excited about franchises again <laughs> they decided that G.I. Joe could be brought out of the back room dusted off and let's maybe make a franchise out of it mm-hmm. and G.I. Joe like at a base level like G.I. Joe from the 80s based on the cartoons is such easy slam dunk concept to bring into modern cinema like it is ready for the marvel treatment and if you're not familiar with gi joe from the 80s but you because you played with care bears good news care bears gi joe same toy (laughs) care bears is gi joe without guns tons of high concept one purpose characters doing things to solve problems and that's what this movie should have been It should have been a collection of characters dressed up exactly like they are in the cartoon. You've got the guy that, for some reason, always fights in beachwear. You've got the (laughs) cold-weather guy that, even though he's sent off to do a warm-weather mission, still has to wear his full 
white parka <laughs> and you have these guys fighting cobra actual cobra people never mind the fact that there's no cobra people in this movie and that could have been fun and then they got these writers to come in and they're like hmm, uh, i think we're going to elevate gi joe somehow and then they try all this horse shit that just confuses what should have been direct dumb and fun and they didn't deliver so that's why i saw it in the theaters because hmm. i thought this actually could be if it is a live action version of the cartoon a fun ride. Yeah. Sponsored yeah. by Cisco. And I'm fine with them just like blowing shit up, but they weren't even good at that. In my opinion, Jeb, was this your first exposure to the live action G.I. Joe verse? I used to have the Netflix uh, disc, you know, service and I got it when it came out. And I was I think I had the same experience that David did where, you know, I, I knew that the reviews were not good, but I thought, well, OK, maybe it's just people not turning their brain off in the right way. Right. Right. You know, and I just completely zoned out about 45 minutes in. It was even worse this time. It took me like three and a half hours to watch the movie. And I still wound up like having to to turn the, the playback speed up to mm, make it to same. the recording on time. Same. You know, as I know that my formative experience with this was watching the cartoon as a kid. I think, you know, it was heavily in afternoon rotation when I was seven or eight. And so like the mentality I had then obviously is not one that's going to obtain now where it's like, well, they got a laser. That makes sense. You know, Serpentor, <laughs> great, you know. But as I was watching it, the first time, and then even more so this time, I was struck by how much my brain rejected the explanations that the movie wanted to have for everything. I don't need to know where these people came from. Like, this guy thinks he's a snake. That's fine. This guy's had his medal. That's fine. Like, you're already, like, the basis for your universe, even in this movie that was trying to anchor it in reality, is so fantastical that, like, just save us some time in the plot for something interesting rather than like trying to take me through, you know, the, the long tortured explanation for how this guy winds up having a metal head. I don't need that. Yeah. You know, I know nostalgia is somewhat pushing that impulse in me because I already just bought the ticket at seven and eight. But like, I mean, I think we, we all <laughs> were all sort of reacting to this. Like, why, why are you telling me this? Why, why did this happen? Why, why anything? Yeah. I mean, there's really a lot of flashbacks and backstory to things that read at their length. And especially the, you know, everybody was kung fu fighting Tekken sequences that read <sighs> like this was the result of a focus group saying, if you want to sell this on international flights to the Far East, you need to have hmm. this aspect. And I think that was in most of the contemporary reviews. We will link to a handful of them in the show notes, including past and future guest of this podcast, Zach Handlin, who was as scathing as everyone else was at the AV Club. But all of the reviews from the time compared this unfavorably to Transformers 2. And I should not be in the position <laughs> ever of feeling offended on behalf of Transformers 2. But right here we are. Uh huh. Is that the one with the uh, robot heaven? I think so. <laughs> There's one of them that has robot heaven, and I thought that was the most audacious thing in the theaters that year. Uh, bad movie, <laughs> robot heaven. <laughs> All right, you got me. I got. I, I, you have my money, and you're welcome to it. And at least in the Transformers franchise, you have the opportunity to contemplate whether Megan Fox's ass is the platonic 
ass. It is the most perfect ass that ever asked. Here, you do not have that. You do have a lot of non-credible foundation garments, but there's no Megan Fox butt, and that's that's going to cost you a couple points. Sorry. I, I don't want to speak for all of our Aussie listeners, but I, I feel like they're very angry right now on Kylie Minogue's behalf, hmm. just because I believe okay. that at one point, like the UK press was like, it's scientific. Kylie Minogue has the world's greatest ass. So I don't know, but like just as a sop for our expansive listenership in the Anzac countries, I just want to <laughs> do that. That is fair. I'm, I'm willing to be convinced. Um, <laughs> Yeah, this is very bad. And on top of that, it's also trying to intersperse the fight scenes, which are not great, and the chase scenes, which are also not great, with like emotional knee-jerk moments or references to other movies. And it's failing at that as well. I have a couple of clips which are just sort of the most top-line obvious homages, I guess you could say. No homages. No um, the first one is from this, you know, Clan McCullen backstory, which in addition to ripping off the man in the iron mask is trying some Obi-Wan thing from Star Wars A New Hope. Here's clip two. Clan McCullen is far greater and more powerful than any of you could ever imagine. My sons will continue to rise long after I am gone, as will their sons. And God willing, their sons. It shall not end with my death. I mean, it's got to end somehow, <laughs> dude, because this is this is terrible. And that scenery will not nourish you. Here's a moment from the end of Apollo 13 that they did a lot better. He did it. He actually did it. Ripcord. Ripcord. I understand why these productions didn't bother pointing out these obvious ripoffs because they just didn't want to draw attention to it in any way. Any other references that I missed? You know, maybe it was because uh, David was going to be here on the episode, but I thought one of those like janky, noisy, you know, that we're throwing every car into the chase that we can. And here's mm -hmm. a, an Arc de Triomphe. I was expecting just to get a sudden yikes. <laughs> no, sorry guys, I'm not set up for it. But yeah, yikes. The action scenes in this yikes. I am hey, hello. There he is. <laughs> the uh action scenes in this movie are just vomitous. They are, they don't have any geographical flow. They are just sort of one note, which is weird because the action scenes are very long yeah and you know whether it is robot dudes chasing a car in paris or submarines fighting underground like it's the same sort of scene six seven times over strung together over five minutes and it's weird because like you've got gi joe the whole thing is we make fantastical costumes for people we make fantastical one-purpose vehicles to fight a very particular battle you know, like if you need to fight a low altitude battle in a semi-arid landscape, we've got your tank and only that one tank. Right. That's the battle I wanted to see. And yet we just get guys in sort of robot exoskeletons that were not in G.I. Joe at all. Like this is a G.I. Joe film. I forgot what G.I. Joe was and the action scenes suffered for it. 
Agree. I forget who, maybe it was Christopher Nolan who was um, taking a bunch of clip for one of the Batman movies and that, or maybe it was Doug Lyman. I don't remember that you just couldn't tell what was going on or where anyone was in relation to one another. And even that was better than this. It didn't make geographic sense, like Dave said. And there was no, like, it, it wasn't a build. It, it just was like at the same sort of seven and a half volume of crunching and flinging of vehicles the whole time. Jeb, what did you think of the battle scenes? Well, I mean, you know, I don't want to besmirch Transformers after we've said so many nice things about it, but you know, they, they did they did kind of remind me of the Transformers scenes where it just looked like two scrapyards were flung at each other for like yes. two or three minutes. Yep. Um, yep. And I was also thinking about, I think it was uh, Paul Greengrass for the second Bourne movie. You got the, the, well, we don't know where anybody's fighting or I, what's yeah, happening. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and those were the two things that, that came to mind as I was watching it were like, I just need to wait until this is over because I know there's going to be some accident or somebody's going to have a quip and it's going to end with them stationary eventually facing each other and saying something that delays whatever breakthrough or conflict resolution or decisive victory one of them is going to get later i know it's not the time in the plot so i just got to wait four minutes until this is done mm. you know because every you know the, the the chase that goes through paris is guys in the suits leaping and grabbing onto the edges of cars like it's so frictionless in terms of its violence that there's never any stakes for any character in it because I can just look at the clock and go, it's it's not time for any of you to die. Yeah. It's not time for any of you to be in real precarity. But you've also, in order to make these conflicts, like these these set piece battles or whatever, or chases so spectacular, you've you've also just stripped them of any kind of like actual literal gravity, but storytelling gravity as well. Because like, okay, you know, you're going to throw a semi truck at this guy. Well, he's just going to jump to the side somehow and grab it and like Spider-Man over it. So why the fuck do I care about the truck? I'm not going to like you can throw anything at him. I'm you throw the Arc de Triomphe like he's just going to go around it. Yeah. Well, I think they were also and Dave, you could tell me if you think this reference holds up, but they were, I think, going for that A team thing where a tank flips over 88 times, but then the occupants get out and just have a yeah. cosmetic smudge. But you still felt some stakes in the A-team, whereas here, you know, there's like a crane shot. I mean, I know it's CGI, but whatever. There's a like crane shot of the absolute devastation of the uncredited population of Paris. Tops have been sheared off of cars like the people died. This is yeah. never mm -hmm. mentioned. No one cares. And it's like, well, do I really care? Or do I not care at all like if you're trying to do pg violence at a rated r pitch that's not gonna work the a-team got away with it this didn't dave thoughts yeah they also showed a lot of scenes in the paris fight where the green goo was eating everything and they explained <laughs> the green goo is just gonna continue to eat anything and everything until the kill switch is activated Mm -hmm. which is not entirely true because it doesn't eat down. It doesn't eat earth. It's mm -hmm. got like a base level. It establishes where they are above sea level and says no further down. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, like ghosts. <laughs> um, but they uh, are eating cars and everything like that. And obviously the people inside got eight and they don't really... Obviously they don't show it. There's not like a, <laughs> not like a skeleton that pops out, you know, like you just... 
you know, like a like a fish bone, you know. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> but obviously they're all dead. And yes, it's supposed to be a relatively bloodless fight, you know, because of they want a certain rating and stuff like that. But again, embrace the G.I. Joe-ness of it where you can have this massive, violent, kinetic battle, yet you see everybody live. Like, Right. Lean into it. Parachutes falling from the sky from the 14 planes you just blew up. 14 planes blew up. One, two, three, four, five. 14 people are now in parachutes. Like, that is the movie they needed to make. And where they are here, which is we want to do that gritty version of a kid's toy and make it work, was, like, a total failure. Like, they exactly, either they had to go further into it and just show heads popping off, or they had to do the G.I. Joe thing where we have 14 parachutes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know uh, this show is like kind of a uh, sticking point in the extra hot great universe. But like Community did a one off parody of G.I. Joe in like season five or six. And it was so spot on and like clearly lovingly done. It was written by somebody. I think Dino Stomatopoulos. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Wrote it. And like you could tell it was written from his childhood. But and I know it's easier to do parody, but just the way that it like clearly realized all the potential of what the the G.I. Joe universe's implications were in 22 minutes is just such a brutal impeachment of everything about this movie. Yeah, I would have preferred to watch that. I would have preferred to watch that episode of the Pink Panther cartoon where his entire life is being eaten by termites constantly, including the like edges of the TV <laughs> that you're watching. It's very meta. <laughs> Should we get into the quote performances? Because it seems almost beside the point but you do have some pretty good actors in here who are just completely overmatched by how badly thought out this movie is nobody has any chemistry with anybody else possibly because no. they're hologrammed into scenes together but that was the most i learned about marriage proposals from the historical documents <laughs> marriage proposal i've seen in quite some time and channing tatum <laughs> It's not the most traditionally expressive actor. I think we can all agree, and I think he would also agree. But there are ways to use him in an action movie, which is the fucking point of him, that don't hang every light in the fake spaceship on his limitations. Yeah. But he's forced to, you know, hoint, scream. Forced to wear a shirt. Yeah. And... He wasn't the one who won a Razzie for this. It was Sienna Miller. Bless. Hmm. And then there's Joseph Gordon. <laughs> Leave it. Poor guy. What? Yeah. If only he knew. I feel like this is just like, he's right. Like, oh, it seems like a big film. I got, you know, my star is rising. This feels like something that could get me a role every three years for the next 15 years. Mm -hmm. eh, wrong. And then the apparatus they put him in and the terrible <laughs> high school spirit gun makeup scar <laughs> tissue and everything. Poor guy. Just like they set him up for failure and he couldn't save it. Even even he couldn't save that role. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because I was watching it thinking like, I wonder if he went into this like thinking, oh, word, I can be in a movie that makes like $200 million, but I can look all mm -hmm. fucked up. Mm -hmm. Like I can just sort of be the opposite of, you know, the nostalgic feelings people have for my face. I can just be <laughs> just a real whacked out monster. This will be great. And then, of course, like that was the one thing he got to enjoy from the movie and nothing else. Yeah. And there is I didn't clip it, but there is a point during his endless series of talking villain scenes where you can hear him 
give up on trying to make this more than it is <laughs> and just go full um, baked Vincent Price on the Brady Bunch autopilot. <laughs> like it happens yeah. in the middle of a word. <laughs> and it's like, you know what? You're right. Good, good call. Just bail. Smarter, not harder, buddy. <laughs> and I don't understand what they're doing with his character either. First of all, I believe if I am remembering correctly, Cobra Commander canonically in either the <laughs> cartoons or the <laughs> comics is a used car salesman in real life. That's where he started or something like huh. something of that ilk. Hmm. And then somehow he becomes this whiny dictator guy eventually in the cartoon. That's the other thing about the cartoons. Cobra Commander is kind of a boob. Like, yeah, he I was doesn't just really say. know what he's doing. Like, and he should be that kind of character. And like, Destro and the Baroness are the ones that are really kind of keeping the Cobra engine going. <laughs> and that was totally lost here. Uh, like, Cobra Commander isn't the mastermind. He is basically failing upwards all the time. I don't know where he gets his money and all that, but that's a, but but that was lost. There is just no mirth here. Like, they made a kid's action figure movie and forgot to kind of inject genuine fun. Like, the whole dark, weird storyline where the brother injects his sister with goo to make her evil. Like, that's that's fucking dark. Yeah. Baroness should just be a dominatrix librarian. That's all we need from the right. Baroness. We just yeah. need her to walk around in, in tight leather and, you know, particular types of glasses and, and say mean things to people. And that's what the character is supposed to be. And they blew that, too. Like, the choices they made on how to make it their own were consistently wrong. And you have to admire that they were able to make bad choice after bad choice here. Yeah, they didn't put a foot right. So I guess in terms of internal consistency, that's mm -hmm. worth a point. Um, are we prepared to rate this project overall at this time? Uh, I sure. sure. Yeah. All right, Dave, hit it. Scale one to 10. All right. Bad action, bad characterizations, terrible special effects. We didn't even get into that. Very first gen. I'm going to give this a two and a half. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I went straight to Jeb. Uh, I, I went lower than both of you. I wanted to give it a one, but Rachel Nichols is in it, and I really enjoyed Continuum, and I like to see her get work, so it gets a one and a half. Okay. I suppose we must now move on to the Quadosity. This is bit of a long clip, but it's everything that you need to know kind of about the movie as well as about Quaid's performance in it. Here's clip four. State your name and rank. You first. My team just saved your life, son. This is the part where you get to say thank you. Those aren't the words that come to mind right now. I wasn't told anything about any support for this mission. So why don't you tell your team to stand down? Hey, we could turn this into one big turkey shoot. Yep. Or not. Easy ripcord. How do you know me? Expert marksman, second in your battalion. Weapon specialist, jet qualified. I told you. Not now, Rip. My name is General Clayton Abernathy. Perhaps you've heard of me, Duke. General Hawk, Afghanistan, NATO, forward command. Yeah, that was my last job. I'm in a whole new outfit now. Mm -mm. Hey, just need to deactivate the tracking beacon for security. Put down that weapons case, son, and let us deliver those warheads. No way. I sign for him. It's my mission, my package. I carry him. I deliver him. Well, that's just fine, but you seem to be a little short of transportation right now, so my team, Alpha, will deliver you to me. And where exactly are you, sir? 
Come see for yourself. <laughs> Pale grum. <sighs> Come see for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget a carton of Winston Lights. <laughs> you pick me up a chicken parm on the way. Also, I'm having a stroke. Hell, girl. <laughs> this is... I mean, I, I'm sort of of two minds. Like, during this scene, the camera, quote-unquote, swings around to show us hologram General Hawk Dennis Quaid yeah. from the side. And it was, like, really creepy. <laughs> It was creepy, but they were so pleased with themselves that they did it three times to make sure in case you were going to the bathroom or getting popcorn. Yeah. You still saw hollowed out, scooped out. He was like a, you know, uh, he was like a zucchini boat. Yeah. <laughs> hollowed him out. Yeah. But then they didn't do that in any other, like when they went around the side of other holograms, they didn't bother doing that. Like, mm -hmm. oops, script coordinator. Um, mm. So I was distracted by that, but I... I'm of two minds about this performance from Dennis Quaid. I think he's on autopilot, but then I think he's like perfectly cast. This is exactly what you want and no more. And this is one of those times, one of the few times where I was not wondering who they asked before they asked him. I think they asked him first for this. Do you guys agree? What more could you ask him to bring to the table is my question. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Posture. Posture. That, that was driving me crazy. He's a general in the military and he's standing like Remy McSwain from the Big Easy. Like he is he is one palm just above like his lower back away from being Remy. It's yeah. just he's leaning back uh -huh. and forth. Like the voice is all like it just sounds like a first take. He's just booming. Like if you told me that they told Dennis Quaid that this was an animated movie and he just needed to be in the scenes for motion capture. I would believe you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, there doesn't seem to be any thought to his physical presence. And then his voice is just sort of like, well, I'm, this is a placeholder for when we, when we do the motion capture, right? We're going to take this again. Right. Here's what I think happened on the set when he came the first day. And this was the extent of his character choices. And I'm borrowing this from Star Wars, which is he came to the set. A guy walked out to him with a fancy box. He lifted the lid up and there was three berets to choose from. And he said, <laughs> make the character your own with your choice of berets. And he's like, mm -hmm, I'll take the second one. And he did it. <laughs> he put it on. And that was the extent of his character choice. It was just like Obi-Wan with the lightsabers. It's just like, all right, there you go. Like, there is nothing to this character. This character is exactly like every other military top brass character you got. There's nothing mm -hmm. that makes him different. So, yeah, I mean... Dennis Quaid, why not? Like, you're not going to get Harrison Ford doing this shit. So no, exactly. Dennis Quaid is here for you. Yeah. This is full of people that are usually the third or fourth choice. But I think yeah. for this, they went to the third or fourth choice. And then fucking Brendan Fraser shows up uncredited again. Yeah. And I think drunk on girl drinks and is just like presiding <laughs> over a montage yeah. and apparently having a fine time working off whatever favor he owed the director from the mummy. Yeah. Cause he's not the only one that was also in that. And you're like, what is, why are we here? What is happening? As a testament to the movie though, you could have swapped those two actors and those roles and nothing would have changed. True. Yeah. yeah. It was nice to see Imhotep again though. I gotta say. <laughs> sure was. Guy's been through a lot. <laughs> Jeb and I have to get used to this version of Quaid, this like generic 
general slash colonel bellowing through a throat full of bourbon flavored gravel delivery is going to be kind of it for the next 15 years of his cv except when he's playing a president who isn't that um he has entered his buffalo wild wings years for sure (laughs) (laughs) yeah general i would not like to fuck yep that's that's where it is but i mean it's pretty quady someone else needs to go first with their quadosity rating this is where I was on the horns of a dilemma, right? Because it did seem very quaid because it's very physically quaid because you've, you've got the quaid posture that doesn't right. really fit the role. So I'm like, well, there's my boy. But you're, you know, part of the reason why I clocked him was because he's making what seems to me to be very little effort with the actual job of performing this role. So it's like, is it more quaid because he was just like, fuck it, I'm shining through right here. Or is it less because... Like, okay, well, Dennis Quaid is also an actor. And so, like, right. notionally, the quality of his acting would factor into. <laughs> so I'm like, is it Quaidy in that it's like a six and a half because you're like, that's my boy? Or is it like three and a half because you're like, well, the acting is terrible, but that is him. Right. And I don't know. I don't know what to do. So you guys have a long history with Quaid. Right. You've been following him from when he was just a little baby and he was acting up until uh-huh. his recent death. I'm, I'm just I'm assuming this is going to go. Uh, and Look, I don't take that long to edit these, Dave. <laughs> yeah. I do take a while, but... But, so I will say, Dennis Quaid and what goes into Quaidosity may be different for you guys than it is for me, because the Dennis Quaid we see here is sort of like where my mind defaults to when I think about Dennis Quaid, which is he's generally grumpy. He is not exactly infusing his roles with a lot of nuance. <laughs> and this is the film where he needed a third level to his house, like mm-hmm. everybody else in this movie, I am sure. And it feels very late era Quaidy to me. Uh, I feel like there is a difference from my last appearance on here where we did Dragonheart, where he was, you know, trying to do something with a little Murph that he was doing a a role with a wink and he was trying to have fun with it. And now he's just over it. And I feel like (laughs) over it is Dennis Quaid, 2010s, 2020s to me. So I would actually probably rate this pretty high for Quaidosity from my POV with the understanding that it might not be your POV. So I would give it a seven. I'm going to go with the six and a half, actually, because... There is that Remy pose. Is it appropriate? No, but it's definitely him. (laughs) But everything else about his presentation is perfect for this role, and I think they had him in mind, so that counts. He's not in it much, and there are no... There's a couple of victorious smirks, but there's no rascally grin, so I have to mark off for that. But this is... I think Dave is right. I think Dave's... POV in terms of this being fairly typical Quaid starting at around this time where he's playing a lot of, you know, colonels and vice presidents and shit. Yeah, it is pretty typical, but it's also extremely bad. Six and a half. Jeb. I'm going to go with six then. I, I, I feel like, all right, I'll follow your interpretation here of uh, what we should be expecting from Quaid. I think maybe it's time I make that paradigm shift, but 
the posture really just killed me. She's like, what is this? Destro's a way of life here? Stand up straight, motherfucker. <laughs> so, six. Fair enough. Next time on Clade in Full, Pandorum. In the meantime, send a fleet of nanomites to check out our show notes, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Pod. Get even more content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash quadenfull. Quadenfull is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund, and edited by Jeb Lund. Subscribing is half the battle, so go sign up wherever you get your podcasts, and rate and review Quadenfull so other Joes can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. I just missed everything you said. Hey, how do I look? Pretty cool. Any huh? questions? <laughs>